some for, yeah, almost like 40 years, and uh, some not quite that long, but uh, uh, it's a great joy to see you and to be with you today. And some of you have become grandparents since I was last here. Congratulations to the Ackermans. So happy for that sweet news, yes. And uh, I, I am just uh, so happy to follow the, the family's progression through, through, the, through the decades. You know, we, this morning we, we partook of the Lord's Seder, the Seudat HaAdon, of the wafer and of the, the wine. And uh, this was taken, of course, from Matthew chapter 26, where Yeshua is at the Passover and he's, he's introducing what he's about to do. He's about to sacrifice his body and shed his blood to ratify the new covenant. The new covenant, to make it fully operational, would, uh, would become uh, uh, put in order or made effective something that had been prophesied as long ago as Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 31 had prophesied of a new covenant, <coughs> excuse me, new covenant that was going to come. But I want to simply point out this now, that uh, when that new covenant was given, and when, when that new covenant was to be made, it was to be made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There was nothing about the assemblies of God in there, you know. There was, there was nothing about the Baptists or the Roman Catholics or the Greek Orthodox. The new covenant that Yeshua inaugurated in Matthew 26 was for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. And it seems quite tragic to me that now in century 21, most of Israel has not yet awakened to the new covenant reality. The, the, the covenant reality that God recognizes, that God put in place with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and yet most of Israel remains in darkness as far as awareness of the covenant is concerned. When we look at the Torah portion this morning, we, we came right up to uh, Exodus chapter 19, where, it's, where God speaks to the house of Israel as they are standing at the foot of Sinai, ready to receive the Torah, the Ten Commandments. And uh, he says that his purpose for them is that they are to be, among other things, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. And what is it the priests do? Well, among the things they do is intercede in prayer. They intercede in prayer on behalf of others. Now, I simply want to point that out because in the New Covenant we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 20 that this is the same responsibility that all believers have, whether they be Jewish believers or non-Jewish believers, we are priests. We are intercessors. We are to be crying out to God for the salvation and the redemption of others. And so I, I, would, I would hope that today, as we have a discussion together, that we would recognize our responsibility to be interceding, to be interceding, to be crying out to God for the salvation, not only of the whole world, but in particular for Israel, that Israel would awaken to its responsibilities to God and enter into the new covenant that God has provided for Israel in the person and ministry of Yeshua. And may that soon become a reality that all Israel recognizes and enjoys along with us. 
Well, I bring you greetings this morning from my wife, Cassiane, who was very upset that I was coming to New York, and she was not. We, uh, we, we presently live, I think we live in Missouri, because we moved from Phoenix back to Missouri, but now we are wintering again in Phoenix. Uh, so we are back and forth quite a bit, but uh, coming now to, to uh, New York, uh, jealous as she always is when I come to New York, I was able to assure her that we'll be back in June and next time you can come. You know, we have the National Jewish Fellowship meeting will be here, and so she will be with me when we come next time. Um, our, our daughter sends greetings from her congregation. She and her husband, Cosmo Panzetta, are leading a Messianic congregation in uh, Sun City uh, in, uh, in Arizona and doing very well. Our son, Jonathan, who some of you will remember, when Ani finished his doctorate and worked with the Jewish Voice for many years as the international coordinator of their medical program, uh, he is now pastoring in Assemblies of God Church. So Rivka has five children, and Jonathan has six children. And our, our youngest one, many of you may remember Daniel, he, is kind of, he was always kind of the black sheep of the family, so he's not in full-time ministry, but he is a worship leader. And you may be interested to know that he's leading worship in the congregation where Israel Nelson is the Messianic rabbi, and also in uh, Arizona. So Daniel has three children. So we have 14 grandchildren, all who live in the same zip code. Yeah. So we are, we are blessed. We are blessed. So I've been in town this week for the Borough Park Symposium. This was a gathering together of Messianic leaders, scholars, together with non-Messianic Jewish scholars, but who all of whom are scholars of the New Covenant, of the New Testament, and comparing notes on the Jewish character, the Jewish nature of the New Covenant. It was a very uh, fruitful time together, but that's why I happened to be in town. The rabbis were very kind to allow me to come and address you today. And uh, uh, I am just very, very honored to have good fellowship in their home. They're such great hosts, such great hosts. Enjoy these kids of theirs, too. These are tremendous young people. So I, it's a great pleasure to be here. Congratulations on next month's 40th anniversary of the congregation, yes? That's really wonderful. 40th anniversary, I was telling, telling them, you know, that's as long as David ruled, you know, was 40 years. That's as long as Solomon reigned, was 40 years. And so here, this congregation has been a light, a witness, and a testimony in this community for this long period of time. So God bless you, and may your next 40 years be even more wonderful. <clears throat> Now, um, I want to read a passage taken, a passage very familiar to us all, taken from Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 25. I'm reading small print here, so you'll bear with me. Here's what the, here's what the, uh, the, the shaliach, or the apostle Shaul, so otherwise known as Paul, writes. He says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, lest you be wise in your own estimation. For a 
partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Kod Yisrael Yivasha. Kod Yisrael Yivasha. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take them when I take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regarding the election, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. <clears throat> now, there's many things that we know for sure from Scripture. And there's many things that, there's many things about uh, Scripture even, but even about the, es the eschaton or the last days, life in general, many things we don't know very much about. So we are continually in that place where we're needing to celebrate what God has shown us and revealed to us and to seek his face about those things which we are still to experience, still to learn. Among the things that we know is that um, God created man, and he made, created man to have fellowship with him, to enjoy intimacy with God. He didn't create man because he ran out of other things to do. He created man because he wanted to have this intimacy with mankind, and he wanted men to worship him, and to worship him in spirit and in truth. He wanted mankind to fully participate in his intergalactic righteousness. I mean, his righteousness reigns everywhere in the universe. The righteousness of God is, is the ultimate cause. I mean, it's, it's the thing to celebrate. What, in fact, did Yeshua say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes, righteousness is incredibly important to God. And when he saves us and the Spirit of God comes upon us, comes into us and redeems us, what is one of the things that he does? He makes us righteous in God's estimation so that we become participants in God's righteousness. And what, what did Yeshua say? Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, goes beyond what they could possibly even fathom or imagine, unless your righteousness is in excess of that, uh, you won't be part of the kingdom of God. And so um, uh, he invites us to be full participants in that glorious reality. This we know. But we also know that mankind is alienated from God. Mankind is in rebellion against God, resisting God, doing everything it can to forfeit God's influence in the world. We certainly see this in, in bodies of legislature and organizations across the United States, but it's really true around the world, and it's kind of always been that way. We, we live in a world where men, mankind, need redemption, and they need entry by God's decree, by God's desire, they need entry into God's righteousness. They, they need 
to enter into the righteous realm, to be practicing the righteousness that God calls for. Now, for this purpose, Israel was chosen. Israel was chosen to be the model of God's righteousness that the nations would be able to see and experience and know so they could be aware, become uh, more greatly aware of God's own nature and character. Israel was to uh, be a nation that would be in fellowship with God, that would take instruction from God, that would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Israel was to be a nation that would be fully participating in God's righteousness and manifesting God to the nations. And uh, this would all was because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has no desire that even one Jewish person should die in sin. And God has equally no interest in even one Gentile dying in sin. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so for this purpose, he raised up Israel that he might have a platform or a studio or an exhibition of what he wanted in mankind, and they could manifest the, 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 the benefits of walking in God's righteousness and having that kind of relationship with God. So Israel was to be an agent of reconciliation, a divine uh, testimony, and uh, because... Um, God is not, uh, God wants everyone saved. This has been the mission of Israel. And the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, we read in Romans. This remains the mission of Israel to this hour, to this minute. The new covenant made with the house of Israel and Judah is operational at this minute. The calling of God made to Abraham, again repeated in Exodus and throughout the scripture, is operational now. God does not change. His purposes remain the same. Now, um, at the same time, there are issues that we are facing in our modern world. Uh, the number one and probably painful reality is that Israel is not walking in the light of the Lord. I know I, I lived in Israel for most of 15 years, and I can tell you that Israel is not a nation that is given to uh, being concerned, very concerned about walking in the holiness of God. You have your very orthodox uh, communities that are very pious and religious and, and they do the best that they can, but the vast majority of Israel is really far removed from concern about, about God, and he's more of a mythical figure. He's kind of a, you know, he, he's a, a folklore personality, but really not something who is alive and real and wanting to have intimate relationship. And um, so Israel, I can tell you, and, and it's not only true of national Israel, but probably most Jewish people in the United States, around the world, Jewish people tend to be living in sin and away from God, and away from the information of God that comes from his word. They're not in tune with the spirit of God. If they were in tune with the spirit of God, the first thing the spirit of God would tell them is that Yeshua is Lord. I mean, God's got one word to say to Israel today, and that's Yeshua. 
And until Israel responds to Yeshua, there's really nothing else to say. I mean, that's the foundation. That's the basis for everything in Israel going forward. So uh, the reality is that Israel is, is by and large still in this posture of rejection of Yeshua. But uh, the reality is that we cannot please God and reject Yeshua. You understand that? You cannot please God and reject Yeshua. I mean, who is Yeshua? Just another, another uh, you know, rabbi taken out of somebody's scrapbook? Uh, I mean, is he just another philosopher in the world? Is he just uh, an interesting historical uh, person? He is the master of the universe. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the pivot upon which all the activity of God turns, past, present, and future. He is central to God's program. He cannot be ignored without grave consequence, without tragic consequence. And it's certainly God's will that every Jewish person in the world embrace Yeshua. Every Jewish person in the world embrace Yeshua as well as everyone else. Here's the good news. <clears throat> there is the promise of ultimate victory. The day is really going to come when all of Israel will be saved. Kod Yisrael That's what keeps a lot of us going and keep going because we know that victory will ultimately come even though it may take uh, decades or generations or centuries we keep plugging away uh, uh, as best we can. You know, I, I used to say uh, that at my age, we could, uh, you know, all, all the decades run together. You know, of course, I think at my age now, I can begin to say that the, the, the centuries run together. You know? <laughs> of course, uh, for, for most of us now sitting in this room, even we've had two millennia run together. But uh, we, we, we know that in spite of however long it may, t may take, and God is, has no problem with time. You know, time's a human issue. It's not a divine issue. God is goal-oriented. He's event-focused. There's things that he wants to do, and if, if it takes a century or uh, a millennium or a couple millennium or 20 millennium. It wouldn't make any difference to him because he is going to accomplish his purposes. So Israel's victory uh, is certain, but Israel's victory, ultimate accomplishment, comes when Israel comes to national faith in Yeshua. Until then, Israel keeps running into brick walls. Israel continues to face uh, a, a world and, and, and the way God does not intend Israel to have to face the world. But Israel will not find the ultimate success that it needs, that it's promised, without acknowledging Yeshua. And, and until then, really, Israel is at risk. Israel is, is a company that, um, is, is, a com is a country that we recognize is in some jeopardy in some jeopardy. We know that even from looking at the Middle East today, what kind of uh, jeopardy there is, political jeopardy, military jeopardy. But in addition to that, Israel is also 
in spiritual jeopardy. The good news is that God's love for Israel is eternal. His love never wavers. His love is forever the same. It's as strong today as it was in any moment in history past. But his love is so genuine, it's so thorough, it's so complete that it includes engaging in occasional chastening when it's necessary. Just like a father with his son or daughter recognizes that if he loves his son and daughter and they are misbehaving, they're about to get into serious trouble, go off track, the parent steps in and administers a little correction. Uh, you like to think they'll just listen the first time. But sometimes when they don't listen, it needs to be reinforced somehow. And sometimes it comes down to something like a whammy. <laughs> but, you know, the, but, but the loving parent is going to engage whatever is required to bring the child back into proper conformity. And God's love is of that nature. He, just, he doesn't just say, oh, I love my people so much. Oh, look at the horrible things about to come upon them. Oh, look at the tragic ways they're, they're conducting themselves. Oh, isn't that terrible? And say nothing or do nothing. He as a father engages with his people and will bring them to a place of repentance. But until Israel comes to that place of uh, repentance, Israel, uh, God is, of course, very long-suffering. Yes, very long-suffering. He's very patient. Again, time is not the issue with God. God doesn't say, I got two years to do this. I better get on with it. He's eternal. He doesn't think like human beings. He doesn't calculate according to our birthdays and holiday season. He is the eternal one. And uh, he is patient. He can even work with people over the course of centuries. But with all that said, still it must be said that God is uncompromising. He's long-suffering, but he's uncompromising. Yeshua is God's appointed, anointed one to lead Israel into her ultimate destiny. That is not going to be compromised by the divine. There's never going to be a time when, that, when, when Yeshua becomes a negotiable item between Israel and the Jewish people. There's never going to be a time when, when, when God says, I understand the terrible things that happened to you over the centuries. I'm sympathetic. I'm going to give you a break. You don't really have to believe in Yeshua. That's not going to happen. Yeshua is central to everything that God intends to do for Israel. <clears throat> um, Yeshua does not need to be elected Yeshua does, is not going to be uh, renegotiated with Israel. Yeshua is, is God's only means of saving Israel. There is no plan B. Do you understand? Yeshua is the means by which God saves Israel. There is no plan B. It's the only, the only method he has in, in focus for Israel and for the nations because Yeshua is the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Messiah, the leader of Israel, the one that God has appointed, the one that God has anointed to lead Israel into her destiny and to the fulfilling of her mission. 
And when we look back at history, we, we remember some things given to us in our Hebrew Bible. We remember the story of uh, Noah and um, how God spoke to Noah and said, you know, the world's a pretty bad shape here. I think we're going to have to start over. You know, we're going to have to start over because men are walking in defiance of me. So I'll tell you what, let me give you a blueprint. You build an ark, and I'll get back with you about, you know, boarding the ark. But uh, the reality is that uh, he didn't just give him the blueprint, but he also made of Noah a witness, a prophetic witness to a whole generation of humanity. He became a prophet to them, and 120 years went by. Yes? 120 years of God's long-suffering patience was engaged as men, men were given the opportunity to repent, to awaken. It, didn't, it wouldn't really require Noah to take 120 years to build a boat, you know. But God was, was wanting to give men the opportunity to awaken so that judgment could be averted. Had they come to a place of repentance, had they believed what Noah said, had they decided to make it right with the one true God, there wouldn't have been a need for a flood. But the flood will come unless they repent. It could have been averted, but they insisted on rebellion, judgment came, and then God started all over with mankind. When we, look, when we look at the first commonwealth of Israel, when Moses brings Israel out of Egypt, and of course they go on, they, they come to the place where they're ready to enter into the promised land. The spies go out, come back with a happy report, or two of them came back with a happy report. We can go in and conquer the land. But the people were faithless, and therefore they were denied entry into the land. Now if they had, if the spies had come back, all 12 had come back with a happy report and inspired faith in Israel, and Israel now was ready to, to, obey, uh, to believe God, to obey God, they could have gone in after two years. They could have gone in right then if they would have been obedient, if they'd have been faithful, but uh, they weren't. And so God says, this generation will die in the desert. I'm going to raise up a new generation of people through whom I'll be able to accomplish my purposes. So it took another 38 years for that to happen before they were really uh, able to enter. Later on, when Israel and, and Judah became viable states within, uh, within Eretz Israel, we know that um, God was blessing them in so many wonderful ways, expecting them now to adhere to his, his Torah, his constitution and bylaws as to how they were to live and move and have their being to be a blessed nation and a witness, a prophetic people to others around them. But um, uh, they engaged in sin. They engaged in idolatry. And when they were threatened by other nations around them, they made fragile political alliances with nations and groups of people whom they should not have trusted. But rather than trust the Lord, they trusted other nations. And as a result, God told them, it's going to be bad for you if you don't just believe me. And the, but the prophetic witness went out. The prophetic witness went out to Israel. God raised up this great number of uh, prophets who went out with a warning 
Believe God. Obey God. Abandon your idolatries. Abandon your carnality. Worship and praise the one true God. Fulfill your destiny as Israel. Don't take the darkness of the nations around you upon yourself, but be a light to the nations around you. But um, they wouldn't have it, and, and uh, finally judgment came, and the northern kingdom was carried off to Assyria. The southern kingdom was carried off to, Bab to Babylon, and uh, they went into um, uh, captivity. But uh, I want to remind us that from the time the prophets began to preach and warn Israel and Judah, it was 150 years went by. The long-suffering God was giving them prophetic witness and testimony for 150 years. But in the end, when they ultimately refused, uh, judgment came and they, they were carried off. But the point being, it could have been averted. They didn't have to be carried away like this and to suffer the way they did. It could have been averted had they heeded the prophets. But, but ultimately, God felt the need to simply plow things under, plow it under, and uh, try to begin again, which he said he would do in about 70 years, yes? And so the people came back, of course, about 50,000 came back, and they began to rebuild the, the, the walls and the, the temple, and, and as soon there was a second commonwealth that was established uh, during the second temple period, and uh, the people of Israel then were given a new opportunity, a new opportunity to become that people that God always wanted Israel to be. But it was a time of uh, great turmoil. There was a lot of uh, political intrigue. There was a lot of cultural borrowing. And they were borrowing often pagan elements from the peoples around them. They were compromising with the world. They were taking on worldly values. Yeah, taking on the values of the peoples around them instead of strictly adhering to the godly code that he had given them. But into that world that was failing God, God sent John the Baptist. Sent John the Baptist as a new prophet to Israel. And he anticipated the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, who also came and uh, provided messianic testimony, messianic witness to Israel that the kingdom of God is at hand. Look, it's all, it's all here. It's ready for you, but you have to walk in obedience. You need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to get right with God so that his blessings can be poured out upon you. But when they steadfastly resisted and refused to accept God's appointed Messiah, the warning was issued, if there is no repentance, judgment will come. Judgment will come. You need to change your ways. You need to sober up. Don't just be drunk with religion or something. You need to awaken to God's coffee here, you know, and, and, and face reality. But when they would not, we know that uh, terrible things happened. God lifted his hand of protection, and in 70 A.D., the Romans came, and at 66 to 70, destroyed the city and the temple, and that was even made worse than in year 135. So it was sort of a, an exclamation point put on the, the year 70 events. And uh, the, 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 the second commonwealth then was, was plowed under. That, that, I think, could have easily been um, averted. 
My expectation is, my thought is that it should have been averted. Israel should have come to faith in Yeshua. From the book of Acts, we see that so many were coming to faith, even Pharisees, even priests were, were, were coming to faith, as well as a great numbers of Jewish people. They should have brought the whole of Israel with them. And then the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Israel, and all these terrible things, the destruction of the second commonwealth, could have been entirely avoided. But at least Israel, even if that happened then, and they're they experienced this, this catastrophe, still Israel should have come to faith in the second century. And if they weren't going to come to faith in the second century, I think it could have been in the third century. And um, God could have easily restored his people. He could have returned Yeshua to rule and reign in Zion. God doesn't have the same kind of, uh, you know, the same kind of time piece we do. He's not, he's not running around, you know, with a, some kind of a cell phone. Say, oh, yeah, you know, I got, I got, you know, 24 minutes left on my sermon. <laughs> I better get on with it here, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't think like that. Uh, he wants event. He wants Israel's repentance. He wants Israel's faith. He wants Israel to walk in obedience to him so that he can utilize Israel the way he's always wanted. But <clears throat> the... Israel did not come to faith in the second century or the third century. In the fourth century, surprising enough, there was a great move towards Yeshua in the Jewish community. We always think in terms of the whole Constantine event with the bishops and all that, and, and then later in the century when Christianity becomes a state religion of the Roman Empire. We always think about this being so amazingly catastrophic, and in so many ways it was, it's also true that there were tens of thousands of Jewish people who embraced Yeshua at that time. I don't know that they understood everything like we would understand it, but somehow they managed to do that. And if all of Israel had come to faith at that time, I guarantee there would have been no Augustinian replacement theology in the 4th century, 5th century. We wouldn't be dealing with many of the of the errors that developed in the second century in the Christian world and were expanded in, in later centuries. Um, and in the ninth century, there was opportunity. And in the, in the 16th century with the Reformation, isn't it horrible the way that was handled by the Reformers when there was, there was this uh, alert going out to the whole Jewish community? They could have considered Yeshua afresh if the gospel had been given to them afresh in a new way they could understand, and things could have been very different following the 16th century. And then we have the Renaissance and uh, the, the Enlightenment and uh, uh, Emancipation and all these things that, that came later, and then the radical changes of the 18th and the 19th centuries. There, 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 were, there were you know, a lot of people, Jewish people, that came to faith in the 18th century and in the 19th century, but it, it hit a certain plateau and leveled off. And it, it didn't have the, the impact upon Israel as it should have had. And things um, did not continue as we would have liked. But um, finally, we come to the 20th century, and we have, what, the rise of Zionism and the Balfour Declaration of 1917. I could really have wished that that would have inspired the, the Christian church largely 
to engage now in Jewish evangelism. Let's give the real Yeshua to the Jewish people so they can see how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, and they will embrace him, or many will in, in any event. But um, they didn't do that, and so then we had to face the Holocaust. And then in 1948, of course, out of the ashes of the Holocaust, comes the Third Commonwealth, the raising up of the nation of Israel in 1948, we have the, the great victories of 1967, the regathering or the recapturing of Jerusalem. And, and uh, but then in 1973, we have the uh, Yom Kippur War. That was less of a victory and, and it's kind of a warning sign in some respects of what things could be. But um, listen, we're now in this third commonwealth. And I remember what happened at the first commonwealth. I remember what happened at the Second Commonwealth. So I'm not unaware of what God is able to do or willing to do to bring his people to a place of repentance. His purposes for Israel remain the same. His love is unchanged. He is a father toward Israel. But he's not beyond the point of bringing correction if, if need be. So I think that um, we Messianics, when I say we Messianics, I mean the people in this congregation, some of whom come from a Jewish background. Others are just here because God's called you here, and you feel like you want to be a part of the redemption of Israel in this generation. We need to be like the Hebrew prophets. The Hebrew prophets, you know, didn't always meet with success. They preached to Israel. They often ended up being killed for it, you know. They, they preached God's truth to Israel, calling Israel to repentance. And all the other religious leaders, all the well-financed pulpiteers, yeah, the false prophets who were out there, the professionals, were condemning the Hebrew prophets. And they were telling the people, don't listen to these prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. Don't listen to them because they're just trying to scare you. They, they don't know how much God loves Israel. God would never allow terrible things to happen. He loves his people, and they're just trying to, to say bad things. They're, they're the prophets of doom and uh, they're not really spokesmen for God. And so you have the prophets pointing the finger at the false prophets. And what do they say? You say, peace, peace, and there is no peace. They were misleading the people, teaching them that they, they were fine. They were fine just the way they were. God loved them so much, you know. He just would never allow anything, anything bad to happen. But that was a falsehood that they unfortunately embraced until it was too late. And the message came through that God would put his people through the refiner's fire. And he would bring forth a, a dross-filled Israel. He would bring them forth as pure gold and make of Israel a golden people that he could use for his divine purposes in the earth. So we need to be like the true Hebrew prophets, and not like the falsehood speakers. 
that are so much characterized the world of our day. We need to be like the Hebrew apostles who made it clear in Jerusalem and in the Jewish world the world over that Yeshua is the pivot upon which all the activity of God turns, past, present, and future. And you need to awaken, O Israel, to this reality because there is no going forward in God without obedience to God. And the number one step in obedience to God is to embrace Yeshua. And so we need to help Israel. We, we who are fully identified with Israel, we who are fully identified with the Jewish world, the world over, with all Israel, we need to be preachers of God's testimony. We need to be proclaimers of the Besorat Yeshua, of the gospel of Yeshua. It's not only because we love Israel, not only because we don't want anything terrible to happen, but um, and, and not just because we find ourselves immersed in Jewish culture, immersed in Jewish life and loving every minute of it, and it's our culture, it's our way of life, it's our being, we celebrate it. It's, it's not just because of those things. We need to proclaim the unadulterated message of God's word to the house of Israel because it's the only way Israel's going to find salvation. It's the only way Israel's going to be rescued from catastrophe. <clears throat> we, we fully appreciate God's great and eternal love for all of Israel. And we celebrate Israel's very mission and purpose. We know, as Bible students, what Israel is destined to accomplish. It's far superior to anything accomplished so far. Israel is to be used of God as part of his divine strategy to impact the whole globe and cause all men to be restored to God. But the world in which we live, danger does lurk. Danger does lurk. We know of, about terrorism, and we know about the Islamic threats in the Middle East and Europe and here in the United States that, that, that come against the Jewish people. We are aware of the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, which is flourishing on major American universities, this anti-Semitic campaign to try to destroy Israel. We see in America now, never mind what's happening in Europe, but what's happening in America now, this, this burst of anti-Semitism which is coming out on every front, we need to be engaged in fighting anti-Semitism. We need to put our energies into combating anti-Semitism, doing all that we can to resist its ugliness and the devastation that it, that it could mean. Um, uh, and um, the, where the, the uh, universities and the seminaries across the world are just celebrating anti-Semitism and, and pushing forward that kind of an agenda. As Messianic lovers of all Israel, we must fight anti-Semitism as it is manifested in the pagan world. But I'm going to go further and say we've got to fight anti-Semitism wherever it surfaces in the Christian world. Because there's a lot of Christian anti-Semitism out there. And we've got to be bold to confront it and, and to, to challenge it. 
But Israel's chief problem today is not anti-Semitism. Israel's chief problem today is ignoring God. Israel's chief problem is refusing Yeshua's leadership, persisting in sin, rebelling against God's divine counsel. That's the chief problem. And they need to awaken to the reality they need to submit to God. So since the 20th century, we've had now the third commonwealth of Israel. And we celebrate that. We, ju we, we just rejoice in that. Every, every uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the day of independence, you know, we who lived in Israel running around knocking everybody on the head with a, with a rubber uh, hammer, you know, all, all the kind of games that are played, you know, celebrating all the, all the great accomplishments of modern Israel. Um, but uh, it, we, we need to understand that although God has allowed for the establishment of a third commonwealth, he, his desires for Israel have not changed. His will for Israel has not been altered in the least. Israel <clears throat> will be that redemptive nation We've, we've been given that promise. Ultimately, there will be success. And Israel will become all that God wants Israel to be. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that's only going to happen when Israel embraces Yeshua. So al although defying God um, is uh, fairly across the board, God is long-suffering, isn't he? He, he put up with Noah's generation for 120 years. He put up with the Hebrew prophet's generation for 150 years. And uh, even when Yeshua came in the first century, um, 40 years were between his resurrection from the dead and the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. And 100 years went by before it was ultimately destroyed when Jewish people were not permitted to even visit Israel. This is an uncompromising God we have with um, his unaltered will for Israel. He's not going to change it. He's not going to listen to our protests. He's not going to want us to be able to renegotiate it. He's decided what Israel's for, and he's going to have an Israel who comes forth as the golden people that he wants and needs Israel to be. And with long-suffering, he will be sending witnesses to call Israel to faithful obedience to God and to faithful obedience to Yeshua. But God has demonstrated over and over again his readiness at some point this is very dangerous for me to say this, but I'll say it. God has demonstrated over and over again his readiness at some point to plow things under. I mean, we've seen him do it more than once. And uh, to restart with Israel on another occasion, another generation, in another century, or even another millennium. Now, 
I don't want things to get out of hand, you know. I don't want that to happen. We need to avert it. We need to avert it. And the way we're going to avert it is by proclaiming the good news to the house of Israel and persuading Israel to embrace Yeshua. So we must labor so that it does not come to that catastrophic point. And in keeping with the heart of God, we need to bring Israel to faith in Yeshua. You know, God called me to Jewish ministry. I'd, I'd just been saved for four months. This was in 1962. I was um, 14 years old. And God called me to Jewish ministry. And um, when, he, when he called me, in that, on that occasion, I remember like it was yesterday, when he called me on that occasion, I, I said, yes, I will do it. Yes, I'll give my life for this cause. And I have. The thing that motivated me was not the sense that Jewish people are going to go to hell without Yeshua. I mean, as true as that would be, my thinking, it was not what motivated me. Or it wasn't the sense of... Uh, um, well, you know, uh, Jewish people need to be spared. You know, they, we had the Holocaust, and that was so terrible. We won't want anything like that to happen again. That wasn't my, my chief concern. My chief concern was I came face to face with the heartbreak of God. I just felt him conveying to me in my young spirit how his heart is broken that his people, Israel, have not come to recognize Yeshua and continue to walk in rebellion against God. He's nourished them. He's, he's done so many wonderful things for Israel all through the centuries. But still, with all of that, he's continued to defy him. And God's own heart, was, it, was, it was as though I thought in my childish imagination that I could kind of wipe away some of the tears from God's eye, you know, I just had to give my, myself to, to, to try to alleviate God's pain. But I do believe he's in great pain at the condition of his people, Israel. So in keeping with the heart of God, we need to bring Israel to a place of faith in Yeshua. We, we cannot wait. I was talking to somebody this week in, in New York City who said, well, you know, we, we can't control revivals. You know, revivals kind of uh, happen on their own whenever God wants to send a revival. He saves Jewish people whenever he wants to save Jewish people. And so the only thing for us to do is kind of exist as messianics, as messianic movement. And somewhere down the historical road, there'll be another revival like there was in the 60s and 70s. But this seems so out of character with what God's word says. First of all, Yeshua says, go, go, preach, teach. You'd like to think that there could be some results from that, yeah? But he says, go, preach, teach. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God is not willing that any should perish, that means everybody who's alive in this generation, God wants to save. And another thing, if God has a passion for the salvation of that Jewish person, 
or that Gentile person. If God has a passion to reach that person and reveal himself and bring them into the kingdom of God, he has a way to do it. He has a strategy to accomplish it. I might not know what the strategy is. That's where it's my responsibility to get on my face before God and cry out to God for, the, for this person's salvation and God to show me in prayer what I need to do to impact this person. There is a way to reach them because God doesn't want anyone to be lost. <clears throat> we need to engage all Israel going forth in the spirit of Elijah, challenging religious falsehoods wherever they appear, whether they're in the Jewish world or the Christian world. We need to challenge every falsehood that does not comply with the word of God. All the misconceptions, all the blind spots, not the least of which is replacement theology, the, the, the mother of all heresies, I call it. The mother of all heresies has to be confronted. We need to go forward in the power of the Spirit, going forth in with the apostolic message, with, the ap with apostolic authority. We need to believe God to intervene. We, we, we need to be like the prophets Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who were not intimidated by the establishment. They defied the establishment with a pure revelation of God's word. We need to know God's word. We need to know his voice. We, we need to know the, the leading of his Holy Spirit in order to effectively proclaim divine truth to all Israel. The big evangelism years in my life were in my 20s. We, we graduated from Bible college in 1970, moved to Los Angeles, and jumped into 535,000 Jewish people there and just began to proclaim the, the message. And we were just focused on bringing people to God to alleviate his pain, reconciling Jewish people with God, helping them to enter into the new covenant that had been uh, given to them. And soon we had hundreds of Jewish people that had come to faith, hundreds. And uh, we established a congregation in 1973 and uh, I led that congregation for a number of, of years before we uh, moved on. Um, from, from there, though, after our evangelism years and our uh, congregation planting years, uh, I kind of grew into this uh, teacher. And so I, I taught when Carol was my student. Yeah, Rabbi Carol was my student at Central Bible College. It was 1979, 1980, right around there. Then I taught out at Valley Forge Christian College. When I was on leading the congregation here, I was teaching there. We went to Israel. Many of you will remember when we went to Israel. There we founded the Israel College of the Bible, which is functioning now in Netanya. And uh, I was also teaching at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Uh, we went on, we were asked by Jonathan Burness and uh, Jack Hayford to launch a Messianic Jewish Studies program at the King's University, which we did. And we led for about eight or nine years until we had a David Rudolph who could come in and spearhead that. We moved over then to the Messianic Jewish Bible Institute where it was my assignment to craft a bachelor's program to be utilized internationally in, in Messianic Jewish schools wherever there had been a revival of some kind that we needed to train leaders. And I just finished that. 
I just finished that assignment on uh, December uh, 31. So now, what am I? I'm 71 and a half years old. Okay. What am I going to do now, now, now that I have, you know, uh, uh, done the education thing, and we've got people that can do the education thing, what am I going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going back to my roots. I'm going back to basic evangelism. Basic evangelism. Carrying the good news to Jewish people. And how am I going to do that? What's the key to success? I haven't got a clue. Because the Jewish world is so different than the world I knew when I, in the 1960s and 70s. And the things that we did and, and exercised then may not work at all now. But I know how to get on my face before God. And I know how to beg him to show us how to proceed. He wants every one of these Jewish people to be saved. He's got a way to bring them to salvation. It's my job to hear from him as to how he wants to do it. And I think that is a formula for uh, success. So um, I, am, I am looking now to, uh, I mean, I'm still going to do some teaching. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to Warsaw. You know, we started you now a Messianic Jewish Studies program in Warsaw. Yeah, right, right near the Warsaw ghetto there. And that's up, it's a fully accredited uh, degree in Messianic Jewish Studies. So I, I'm, uh, t I'm continuing to teach a little bit in that kind of a program, and I expect I, I will be here and there. But my main focus now is going to be on evangelism. But, uh, but you know what? I can't do it uh, myself. Um, uh, we have to fight anti-Semitism. Um, we need to engage in frontline evangelism to reach Jewish people. But it, it, it can't just be, you know, Ray Gannon, or it can't just be a handful of people. It really needs to be an awakening among the believing community as to what our responsibility is to salvage Israel, to salvage the, the third commonwealth, as it were, and so that Israel can become the people God wants Israel to be. We need to have teams of people. We, we, we zeroed in, identified 101 Jewish communities across the United States that have at least 11,000 Jewish people in them. And we, we need to have teams in all these places. We need to have prophetic emissaries, those that will go out in the power of the Spirit and proclaim the Word of God to the Jewish world. Messianic ambassadors, Kingdom of God representatives, people who are well-trained, but people who are Spirit-led, who are giving their lives to the salvation of Israel who look upon themselves and their future uh, their, as, as their, their chief life's work is the salvation of Israel. They begin to look upon the Jewish people as God looks upon the Jewish people, as his beloved people for whom he has such a grand future, for whom he's so brokenhearted because they're alienated from him. The people need to bear God's burden and engage in God's passion for the salvation of Israel. We need, we need myriads of people like this. We need a whole army of, of people. The old methods uh, don't work, but God is not willing that any should perish. We need to discover new ways and means. We need divine illumination from God.
to engage in spirit-led Jewish evangelism. So here's what, uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask you to give zero money. Okay, relax. What I'm going to ask you to do is to, and I, I'm asking something of you today that I haven't asked of anyone else. It seems, it seems quite suitable that you would be my first ones to ask. But I'm asking this, that as those intercessors, Israel is, is a mamlechet kohenim, a kingdom of priests, and this theme is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 20. We are a kingdom of priests. We're part of the kingdom of priests. I want to ask you to be interceding with me for the salvation of Israel. And this is where your cell phone comes in. Seven minutes a day. You can set your alarm if you want, if you need to. You can set it for seven minutes. But I want you to engage in intercession for Israel seven minutes a day. I want you to be crying out to God for specific people you know, Jewish people you know. You can make a prayer list that you can pray for those same people. You can ask God to intervene. God will speak to you about them. God will give you a word for them. And, uh, and I, I want you to intercede like that six minutes a day, crying out to God, crying out to God, crying out to God like, like the work days of the week. But then I want you to take a seventh minute, a seventh minute to just rest and thank God for his victories. Thank God for the people you have prayed for. You're sure he's going to bring them to faith because he loves them, he wants them, he's going to move by his spirit in a way they're going to come into the kingdom of God. When you pray for Israel, I want you to begin to see Israel as that, as that golden people that God intends Israel to be. Thank God for his commitment to have a people that are going to be that golden nation that he can use in such marvelous ways. And I want you to do that for seven days. Six minutes of intercessory prayer where you're crying out to God. Let your heart break. Don't be afraid to cry. You know, don't be to, to raise your voice to cry out for the salvation of Jewish people. But then take that seventh minute to celebrate. And then at the end of seven days, you've prayed now how, how many minutes? 49 minutes. Seven uh, seven minutes for seven days, you have 49 minutes, which leads us to the minute of jubilee. <laughs> the minute of jubilee. And now for the 50th minute, which will climax your week, I just want you to lose all consciousness <laughs> and just celebrate what God is doing by his spirit in bringing Jewish people to faith. He is going to do it. He's committed to it. He will not fail. But he's looking for partners. He's looking for partners who are going to share his passion, to share his desire, to share his faith system. He's believing for it. He wants us to believe for it. So we got that. Six minutes of intercession, one minute of celebration. At the end of the week, you add minute number eight 
to your seven and make that your minute of jubilee and you just fly off the handle with joy because of what God is accomplishing for his purposes. Thank you very, very much for the privilege of being with you today. God bless you.